take the constitutional oath? I am. If you place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me, I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully... At high noon on January 20th, 2017, the United States will have a new president. Seventy-three days will have transpired between the election and the inauguration. We call that period the transition, and we call the president who maintains all the power, but little of the influence during that interval, a lame duck. I think one thing that's clear is these transitions uh, can get sticky. That's the writer Charles Rapley author of a recent book on the presidency of one of our most maligned chief executives, Herbert Hoover. Hoover's transition to Franklin Roosevelt, the man who beat him in a landslide in 1932 during the depths of the Great Depression, was one of the most awkward intervals between presidents in all of American history. In fact, that transition worked so poorly that it prompted a change in the U.S. Constitution moving up the date of the inauguration of a new president from March 4th to January 20th. Charles Rapley will help me tell the story of the lame duck that was Herbert Hoover in this episode of MTC, Many Things Considered, a podcast looking to politics past to make sense of politics present. Thanks for joining us for this episode, which we'll call Lame Ducks. I'm Mark Johnson. We'll also consider the ongoing efforts to professionalize the presidential transition process. So I'm David Eagles, and I'm the director for the Center for Presidential Transition. And we're part of the Partnership for Public Service, nonprofit, nonpartisan, committed to making government more effective. The lame duck period, the transition, involves an immensely complicated process. So if I could, let's take a step back from this, right, and think about really what we're talking about. So we're talking about an incoming team that's inheriting a $4 million employee base, a $4 trillion budget, hundreds of federal agencies, 4,000 political appointments that they've got to make, and historically a couple of things. One is they've only had 70-some-odd days between election and inauguration to prepare historically, which is not nearly enough time. And secondly, they've had to produce this from scratch. Every incoming transition team, it has basically been like Groundhog Day, where they're reinventing the wheel and starting from scratch. So Uh, We at the Center for Presidential Transition recognized the importance of the issue of transition. It really is the only time these incoming teams can take a step back to understand how they want their government to work, because it's often too difficult once you're in office. Uh, And secondly, we've been connecting the dots of the right resources and the right experts to ensure these incoming teams get off on the right foot, and we have the smoothest and most successful transition in history. We'll also talk in this episode of Many Things Considered to Stephen Hess, a fellow who's observed presidential transitions all the way back to Dwight Eisenhower. Sometimes the incoming people have a certain type of, of, of arrogance um, that's very exciting, the new, new experience for them. We'll hear more about the complications of a presidential transition in a few moments. There are lots of things that can go wrong, and most of them have at one point or another. But first, let's consider what a complete outlier the United States is among virtually all other democracies when it comes to the business of selecting and then putting into office its national leader. Here's what Stephen Hess, a guy who worked for Presidents Eisenhower and Nixon, 
and wrote a transition plan for Ronald Reagan, has written about our transition process. In most of the world's democracies, he says, the pieces of a newly elected government are already in place in the form of a shadow cabinet whose members have been serving as the government's loyal opposition. When a new leader takes office, members of the new cabinet are immediately available. In the United States, however, a newly elected president must quickly put together his government, choosing hundreds of private citizens to serve in a new administration. So, the U.S. is an outlier. Or to put it bluntly, no other country in the world takes so long to select a leader nor spends so much doing it. And then once we make our choice, we have a lame duck president for nearly three months, while a new president, the president-elect, figures out how to staff his government, create a White House team, and how to plot out a new agenda. I confess to being a fan of most things Canadian. I've never known a Canadian who you wouldn't want to have over for dinner. That's Sarah McLaughlin, by the way, singing the Canadian national anthem at, of course, uh, a hockey game. I've loved visits in the past to British Columbia and New Brunswick. Toronto and Vancouver are world-class cities. And a country with a national obsession over hockey can't be all bad, eh? But I think Canadians, in their polite and unassuming way, must be mystified by our politics. I'm convinced, based upon admittedly a limited and unscientific survey, that the average Canadian knows a great deal more about U.S. politics than almost any American knows about Canadian politics. I've got to think that our process, though, long and complicated as it is, must be really confusing to our northern neighbors. I happened to be in Canada visiting in the fall of 2015 while Canadians were in the final days of their own national election. It's been one of the longest campaigns in Canadian history, a marathon of politics and passion. Now it comes down to this. Live from CBC News election headquarters, chief correspondent, That marathon of a Canadian election last year, one of the longest elections in Canadian history, it took 78 days. 78. Listen to the wonderful CBC anchorman Peter Mansbridge on election night in Canada 2015. So let's go over this once more. Justin Trudeau becomes the next Prime Minister of Canada. He will be the 23rd Prime Minister of Canada uh, when he takes office. That's usually about 10 days to two weeks between the election and the swearing in of a new government. This is what's happened so far, and this is one of the. So, just to underscore that, the typical Canadian government after a national election takes office 10 days to two weeks after the election. In fact, the new Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took 16 days to assume office after his election in the fall of 2015. Still, by U.S. standards, that was a transition occurring at warp speed. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. 
And one more example. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. I want to thank everyone who took part in the campaign. After the United Kingdom's referendum on June 23rd this year over whether the UK would leave the European Union, the shorthand is Brexit, Prime Minister David Cameron, who opposed the referendum, resigned. Immediately, the day after the vote, no hemming, no hawing around, and then 18 days later... I have just been to Buckingham Palace, where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government, and I accepted. In David Cameron... The new British Prime Minister there, Theresa May, announcing decisively and quickly the formation of a new government after the referendum vote. Those two examples, Canada and the UK, admittedly from democracies with a parliamentary system as opposed to our system of very divided government, nevertheless serve to underscore how very differently the U.S. does presidential elections and presidential transitions. We've had some reasonably good presidential transitions in our history, a lot of mediocre transitions, and some that were simply disastrous. Before the 20th century, it was not uncommon for the incoming and outgoing presidents to completely ignore one another. They not only didn't coordinate, they didn't even talk. The worst presidential transition, without a doubt, was the four-month period following the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. John Nicolay, an aide to Lincoln, and one of his earliest biographers, actually wrote about it. Between the day when a president is elected by popular vote, Nicolay said, and that on which he is officially inaugurated, there exists an interim of four long months, during which he has no more direct power in the affairs of government than any private citizen. However anxiously Mr. Lincoln might watch the developments of public events in Washington and in the cotton states, Whatever appeals might come to him through interviews or correspondence, no positive action of any kind was within his power beyond an occasional word of advice or suggestion. Indeed, Abraham Lincoln said very little during the four months when the lame duck James Buchanan did almost nothing to contest the secession of seven southern states, and the Civil War commenced a little over a month after Lincoln took the oath of office. By most accounts, a much better modern transition, perhaps the best ever between presidents of an opposing party, occurred after John Kennedy's narrow win over Richard Nixon in 1960. Listen to NBC's John Chancellor narrate the movement of Kennedy's motorcade the morning after the election as the president-elect heads out to formally claim his victory. The motorcade that will take... President-elect, there it goes, there are the photographers in the car, there are some of the reporters, policemen, secret servicemen. There's the white Lincoln right there. There's the white Lincoln, just behind the tree. There he is, in there he is, the next president of the United States. He always sits in the front seat, and incidentally, uh, so does Mr. Khrushchev. These people find that you can wave more easily from that point. That's Pierre Salinger in the car that just went by, the press secretary who has dogged Mr. Kennedy for this entire campaign. All closed cars, modest. They might be on their way to the supermarket, really, in that town. (laughs) It's quite a shopping spree. (laughs) It's quite a shopping spree. They've been shopping for all these days. 
And that, I believe, in the background there, that little strip of water you see, is Nantucket Sound. And now we're going to our reporter on the scene in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Here's President-elect Kennedy now. Coming up to the armory. The President-elect of the United States. I received also a wire from President Eisenhower which says, my congratulations to you for the victory you have just won at the polls. I will be sending you promptly a more comprehensive telegram suggesting certain measures that may commend themselves to you as you prepare to take over next January the responsibilities of the presidency, signed Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I have sent to uh, President Eisenhower the following wire. I am grateful for your wire and good wishes. I look forward to working with you in the near future. The whole country is hopeful that your long experience in the service of your country can be drawn upon further in the years to come. With every good wish, signed John Kennedy. Dwight Eisenhower, never quite convinced that young John Kennedy was prepared to replace him, nevertheless met with Kennedy twice during the transition and gave the incoming administration wide access to the government. The first Eisenhower-Kennedy meeting took place on December 6, 1960. stage of history is set for the first meeting between President Eisenhower and Senator Kennedy since the election. The oldest of the nation's presidents and the youngest president-elect meet in an atmosphere of cordial informality to discuss the transition from the present to the incoming administration. Never before has the transfer from one administration to another been as carefully or as cordially managed. On this occasion, the president and the president-elect spent nearly three hours in a conference with some of Mr. Eisenhower's chief advisors present, covering not only procedural matters, but all the responsibilities of world leadership the nation now bears and the problems America will face in coming months. To the world, both men present a clear picture of national unity in the search for peace, as well as in the orderly transfer of the reins of power. Afterwards, Senator Kennedy answers a few questions, although the details of the talk remain private. this opportunity to express my appreciation to President Eisenhower. He was extremely uh, generous in the time that he gave to the discussion of the problems that the United States now faces and will face in the coming months. The President and I talked for about an hour and 45 minutes and then uh, he brought in the Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury and the Secretary of Defense. And that meeting was attended by General Persons and Mr. Clifford. The White House will have a statement to make on the meeting shortly. Let's hear again from Stephen Hess. He's now the Senior Fellow Emeritus of Government Studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington. And he says these transitions weren't all that high-minded, at least not all the time. He knows because he was working in the Eisenhower White House when the transition occurred after the 1960 election. I remember very clearly in the Eisenhower case, uh, I was only asked 
one question by the incoming people. That was uh, Pierre Salinger asked me if Jim Haggerty, uh, Eisenhower's press secretary, really kept his wire service um, teletype in his lavatory. <laughs> that seemed to be that seemed to interest him more than anything else I could provide him information I could provide him. Of course, the answer was yes. And then, of course, he didn't ask the follow-up question, was was it a good idea, in which I to- could have told him that it was not a good idea. Memo to future White House press secretaries, do not place the wire service machine in the lavatory. <laughs> One of um, Haggerty's secretaries had forgotten to lock the door when Secretary of State John Foster Dulles had to, has an ur- urgent need. Theodore Sorensen, a top aide to Kennedy, was one who called the transition between Eisenhower and his boss the smoothest in history between presidents of competing parties. But as proof that transitions can and often do create major problems for an incoming president, it was during their second meeting, January 19, 1961, the day before John Kennedy assumed office, the president, Eisenhower, and the president-elect Kennedy discussed Cuba. Kennedy came away from that White House meeting convinced that Eisenhower, the military hero of World War II, strongly supported military action against Fidel Castro's still new regime in Cuba. The action that Kennedy eventually authorized just three months later, the Bay of Pigs, turned into a fiasco and was the first significant blunder of the Kennedy presidency. Eisenhower had built a fairly elaborate infrastructure for the White House staff. Uh, he, he had been a general. That's what he was used to. He, he he built this, and it worked very well in terms of peace and for, for eight years. And he was very anxious uh, for for Kennedy when they met to understand this and hopefully to, to accept it. Kennedy immediately uh, disbanded this. Uh, and in fact, very soon there was a Bay of Pigs, and Kennedy didn't have any infrastructure there to, to protect him. Surveying the broad sweep of American political history, it's difficult, at least for me, not to have some sympathy for a president seeking a second term during the worst depression in modern times. The unemployment rate was north of 23% during the election of 1932. Banks were failing all over the country. The farm economy was in shambles. And the president, of course, took the blame. Herbert Hoover, a dour-appearing man and not much of a communicator, has been cast as a 20th century political villain, at least in part because he had the misfortune to run against a sunny optimist who may have been the greatest presidential communicator ever. By the end of the Hoover-Franklin Roosevelt campaign in 1932, the two men had come to loathe each other, and those ill feelings badly complicated the transition from one to the other. Here's Roosevelt on the stump in 1932, and then you'll hear Hoover, thinly disguised disdain in his voice, responding to the man who will replace him. The president began this campaign with the same attitude with which he has approached so many of the serious problems of the past three years. He sought to create the impression that there was no campaign on at all, just as he had sought to create the impression that all was well with the United States, and that there was no depression. (laughs) 
We are told by the opposition that we must have a change, that we must have a new deal. It is not the change that comes from the normal development of national life to which I object or you object, but the proposal to alter the whole foundations of our national life, which have been built through generations of testing and struggle and the principle upon which we have made this nation. Charles Rapley's sparkling new book, Herbert Hoover in the White House, The Ordeal of the Presidency, details Hoover's struggles against the Great Depression and often against his own personality. I reached Charles Rapley at his home in Los Angeles, and I asked him about what was in 1932 an even longer period than we have today with a lame duck in the White House. And during that long interval, the U.S. economy continued to tank. So this interregnum period, this period between the election of the new president and the departure of the old one, it ran a good three, four months. And during that time, that's when the banking crisis accelerated. And it was during the time between the outgoing administration that was trying to hold the line on currency, on the value of the currency, and the new administration, which was quietly implying that it was going to devalue the currency. It was during that period that uh, depositors were pulling their dollars from banks, that uh, the financial crisis accelerated, uh, uh, first in Louisiana and then then in Michigan and then in some other states. They did did banking moratoria. They closed down all the banks uh, for limited periods of time because the runs on the banks were getting too intense. And then, uh, but that didn't stop hemorrhaging. The bankruptcies got bigger. There was little formalized presidential transition in 1932. None of the coordination between the guy who's leaving and the guy who's coming in in an effort to create a seamless handoff. In fact, Hoover, who was at home in California when the election results came in, had been planning a vacation to Hawaii immediately after the campaign. A dedicated fisherman, the president wanted to leave politics behind. But waking up as a loser, he thought better of going fishing. Hoover, rather than take that vacation to Hawaii, he sent off a telegram to Roosevelt advising him that the nation was in crisis and that the the president-elect should sit down with the sitting president and devise a strategy. And uh, Roosevelt took this uh, took this charge and and looked at it a little quizzically and and went ahead and said, "Okay, I'll meet with you." And he did uh, uh, first in December, and then they met again in January, and they met again a couple of times after that. Always to the end of Hoover trying to get Roosevelt to commit to the idea that he's going to maintain the value of the currency and and uh, protect the the investors and protect the bank assets by by holding on to the gold standard and uh, Roosevelt uh, cheerfully or sometimes a little testily letting Hoover know that he was not going to participate in such a plan. He was not going to make commitments as to what he was going to do until he got into office and that Hoover would just have to ride out the storm on his own. To say the least, the face-to-face meetings did not go well. Again, here's Hoover biographer Charles Rapley. 
not just the meetings, but also Hoover's discussions inside his own White House with some of his aides, fuming at the idea that 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 Roosevelt would blow him off and and refuse to to collaborate like that, and predicting the most dire consequences when uh, when in fact the dire consequences were already happening and were quite uh, quite clearly on his watch and his baby. Uh, to deal with. Hoover and Roosevelt met for a final time on the morning of March 4, 1933. The president-elect came to the White House to join the lame duck for a traditional ride to the Capitol for the inaugural ceremony. The two men sat uncomfortably in the back of an open car. A photographer captured the now-famous scene. Maybe you've seen the photo. FDR, confident, smiling. Hoover, somber and deadly serious a photo that, in a way, defines an era. One of the cartoonists at the New Yorker seized upon it and did that as a cover uh, for the New Yorker magazine around that period, around that point in time. And that also became iconic, was this this cartoon cover of, of Roosevelt with his jutting uh, uh, cigarette holder and his big smile and Hoover glowering and and uh, grim. It's really a testament to the to the role and influence of character in a democracy, in a, in in a, the role of leadership. These ephemeral qualities that that can seem uh, insubstantial and inconsequential, but in fact, uh, in the in the almost mystical role of a presidential leader, uh, those are the things that really count. And that was Hoover's great failing in office was that he had he was certainly smart enough uh he was he was full of knowledge and experience but he was a poor communicator uh and he he felt hamstrung in office and he really was because one of the great tools of the presidency which which Teddy Roosevelt called the bully pulpit and has been called that ever since uh, that really wasn't available to Hoover because he was just not a bully sort of character. He was not a public speaker. He was not comfortable with crowds or with strangers. And it's the wrong makeup for an elected official, and it was the wrong makeup for the presidency. This great nation will endure as it has endured. We will survive and we will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Roosevelt comes in and the first thing he does is to declare a national bank holiday, closing all the banks, all the financial operations of the country for a week. And uh, just the simple fact of a national federal authority stepping in to the banking crisis and saying, okay, we're going to suspend all our operations we're going to restore order 
and then we're going to reopen and everything's going to be okay. Uh, simply that directive coming from the federal government achieved its end, which was to to calm the markets, to quiet the, the depositors, the rush of the run on deposits. And in fact, when the bank open, banks opened a week later under federal supervision, there was this remarkable period of people bringing all their money back to the banks and and re redepositing all their funds, uh, restoring health to the balance sheets, and all these banks turned out to be not on the brink of default and uh, and reopened and successfully operated. It wasn't the end of the depression, but it was the end of the banking fever that was had set in. And it was probably the only way it was going to happen is by getting Hoover out and getting a fresh face, a fresh voice in uh, in authority. And uh, so everybody could sort of turn the page and, and leave their fears behind and go back into the business of just sort of daily life. Um, it's sort of it, – it's certainly a tragic outcome for Hoover who had tried so hard – uh, to work things out, but in the end, it was it, part of what was required to 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 chase the fear out of the system was for Hoover to step aside. Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt had almost nothing in the way of legal or political guidance, even little tradition to fall back on when it came to their very rocky transition during the Great Depression. Gradually since those troubled times, the transition process has become more formalized and more practiced. You may have missed it, but earlier this year, Congress actually passed bipartisan legislation signed by President Obama. I know, I was a little surprised too that codifies many of the best practices from the 2008-2009 Bush to Obama presidential transition, which is widely viewed as having been quite a success. The philosophy underlying the new law, which spells out a series of steps the outgoing administration must take to facilitate both of the potential incoming administrations, is that governing is different than campaigning. The late New York Governor Mario Cuomo famously said that you campaign in poetry, but govern in prose, an acknowledgement that running for the job and doing the job bear little resemblance. Here again is David Eagles. He worked on Mitt Romney's transition in 2012 and served in the senior executive service of the federal government in both Republican and Democratic administrations. He's now the director of the nonpartisan, nonprofit Center for Presidential Transitions. Even eight years ago, we saw a big shift, and it was in the post-9-11 environment. Uh, President Bush at the time recognized it's going to be important for the outgoing administration to participate and to make it a smooth handoff from a security standpoint. And I think because of that, uh, we learned a lot in terms of the, uh, the process and how we can make it much better. And so what I'm really fascinated with in this cycle, this is only uh, the second time in history – Governor Romney did this four years ago – where you actually have a mandate from Congress for these incoming teams to plan. But this is the right thing to do, and it's completely separate from the campaign. Because, again, as we spoke about earlier, campaigning and governing is different. Uh, and so we think all the right pieces are in place. 
frankly, with our support and resources and experts that we can learn from, so we're no longer starting from scratch, we actually use best practices and we get smarter each time, that we should see much better results really to keep this country safe and prosperous. And I asked Stephen Hess, the Brookings Institute expert on governance, a fellow who's been involved with transitions for presidents going back to Dwight Eisenhower, to offer some advice to the new chief executive. Well, my advice certainly would be um, take it easy, slow down, listen. Uh, These people often uh, make mistakes that, that, that are unnecessary. Well, here's hoping the people in charge of the current presidential transition have studied a little presidential transition history. For more on lame ducks and presidential transitions, visit the website of the Presidential Transition Project, part of the Partnership for Public Service. The White House also has a website loaded with lots of information. Charles Rapley's book, Herbert Hoover in the White House, was published earlier this year by Simon & Schuster. I highly recommend it as a great history of Hoover's troubled but still very important presidency and the rocky transition between his presidency and that of Franklin Roosevelt. The Brookings Press published Stephen Hess's latest book earlier this year. It's entitled America's Political Dynasties from Adams to Clinton. Another of Hess's books, a handbook on presidential transitions, is entitled What Do We Do Now? That prompted me to recall one of my all-time favorite scenes in one of the best movies about politics ever made, The Candidate. The 1972 film stars Robert Redford as an idealistic young U.S. Senate candidate, Bill McKay, who improbably defeats an entrenched incumbent, but not before systematically trading much of his idealism for political expediency. In a terrific scene near the end of the film, the young senator-elect is congratulated by his father, a former governor, played by the great actor Melvin Douglas. Son, you're a politician. <laughs> no, we're ready. Here he comes! <laughs> Jostled by supporters, staff, reporters, all pressing to get near the winner, Redford's character insists on ducking into a quiet hotel room to talk with his hard-charging campaign manager. Okay, we've got about 60 seconds of privacy before they find out we're here now, so uh, what's on your mind, Senator? I don't know. Okay, we got to get out there. See, I told you they'd be there. Marvin, what do we do now? Wait a minute, wait a minute, what? The greatest line in a great political movie. Marvin, what do we do now? That's a clip from The Candidate. If you haven't seen it, you should. And don't worry, no one will ask that question during the presidential transition. I hope. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends... You can find MTC, Many Things Considered, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider subscribing. And we're also on the website of Gallatin Public Affairs. The website is gallatinpublicaffairs.com. For more than a quarter century, Gallatin Public Affairs has operated at the intersection of business, government, politics, and the media in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. You can follow my written observations about politics and history at my blog, The Johnson Post, 
and it can be found at www.manythingsconsidered.com. Until next time, I'm Mark Johnson, Smooth Transitions, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.